0: So we, um, not too long ago, went through the Christmas season, and I spoke on the theology of Christmas carols, and in that I talked about the Incarnation, which is really the centerpiece of what's going on at Christmas. And then a few weeks later, Chris spoke also on the Incarnation, focusing on the kenosis of Christ. And I've just been meditating for the last two and a half months on the Incarnation, and I can't get it out of my head. But more importantly, I can't get it out of my heart. So I'm going to try and get my heart across to you today because it's an ungraspable thing, but we need to try and grasp it. The reason Jesus came... To earth cannot be separated from the story and the celebration of his coming. It's a crucially important doctrine, a critically important reality, and serious business. It's not a children's story, and we haven't done ourselves a favor by making it one. By focusing on the rustic, silent night details of the night, the little town, the stables, the stars, the shepherds the stuff of portraits and songs, believers have short changed the reality and implications of what Jesus did when he became a human being, and much of the substance of why it mattered that he came. I, it's, I, I can't believe it's coincidence, it has to be Providence, the two hymns that we sang in the service this morning, because those are the hymns that have been running through my mind, particularly, and can it be, and you're going to hear some of that today. And then we come here, and Ferdy and his group reads a crucial portion of Isaiah 53. Couldn't be more appropriate. So <clears throat> we're going to try and be in praise of the Incarnate One today, not just understand the Incarnation as an event or as a theological concept but to praise the one who became incarnate. And I always swore I would never do this, but I have a three-part message that's alliterative. (laughs) That has always bothered, and the last one is contrived. That's always bothered me when preachers do that. Abner knows I've complained about it before to him, and yet here I am today. So, we're going to begin with the need for the Incarnation. Before the fall, and by the way, much of what I'm going to talk about today, you already know, but I want to remind you and then I want to try and drive it home a little more than it's usually driven home. Before the fall, Adam literally walked with God in the presence of God. He was in the presence of God. He could be and was in the presence of God. This was possible because in his sinless state, he was uncorrupted. When he sinned, his flesh and his soul became corrupted, so he could no longer be in God's presence and had to be removed from God's presence, from the garden Nothing corruptible can enter God's presence. With the fall, mankind was separated from God. Isaiah 59.2, some of you know my favorite chapter now in the Bible. Isaiah 59.2, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hid his face from you so that he does not hear. This is the crucial, crucial fact of mankind. We are separated from God because of our sin. Just like Adam had to be separated, had to be kicked out of the garden, and an angel had to be set to guard it, he could no longer be in the presence of God. We became children of wrath, as Ephesians 2 says. We no longer walked with God, but walked in disobedience. Walked according to the world's desires. Dr. MacArthur has been talking about walking in a manner worthy of our calling. When, When the fall occurred, when mankind sinned, when each of us individually sinned, we were no longer worthy to walk with God. We were alienated from God. We became hostile in our minds and in our deeds. Isaiah 59 says this, verses 10 to 13, We grope along the wall like blind men. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at midday, as in the twilight. Among those who are vigorous, we are like dead men. All of us growl like bears and moan sadly like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. Our transgressions are multiplied before thee. Our sins testify against us. Our transgressions are with us. We know our iniquities, transgressing and denying the Lord, turning away from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving in and uttering from the heart lying words. But God was determined to do something about that. It wasn't his fault but he was determined to do something about that. And so we have the promise of the Incarnation. And that promise came from the angel to Joseph in Matthew 1, verse 21, which we routinely read during the Christmas season. Matthew 1, verse 21, the angel said to Joseph, She will bear a son, you shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. It wasn't that he would save them from impoverishment, or that he would save them from political slavery, or that he would save them from social injustice, or save them from health problems, or any other socioeconomic woe. He came to meet mankind's greatest need, salvation from sin that restores mankind's relationship with God, the broken relationship, our alienation from God. There's nothing we can do to restore that relationship. There's nothing we can do to gain a relationship with God, to dwell in his presence, We are as capable as dead men to act on our own behalf. Isaiah 59.10 says it, Ephesians 2 says it, and you remember that Dr. MacArthur covered that passage a couple of months ago. We are like dead men. I spoke about this once before and made Joe lie on the floor here, um, which I am still apologizing for. And I put a pill on his chest, and I said, okay, you're a dead man, now take this pill to bring yourself back to life. And he couldn't do it because he was dead. And that was the point of the illustration. There's nothing we can do. Nothing we can do. We're as capable as dead men. We're totally and completely incapable. In light of that reality... God chose to intervene on our behalf, to restore us to a relationship with him. Isaiah 59, after those very depressing and disturbing and and desperate words, verse 16, And God saw that there was no man, that is, who could intervene, and was astonished that there was no one to intercede then his own arm brought salvation to him his own arm brought salvation to him and that's what the incarnation is about god acting to intervene on our behalf to restore us to a relationship with him in addition to that that plan Required the incarnation of Jesus as a man. He required Jesus, the eternal third person, second person of the Trinity, who had always existed and who created all things. It required him to become one of his creation, to become a man, or at least the essence of his creation, a man. That plan also facilitated God's fulfillment of the promise he makes in Genesis 3.15, that one of Eve's seed will crush Satan. So these are the elements that are involved in the incarnation, and we need to turn now to the nature of the incarnation. That's the need for the incarnation. We are dead. We are desperate. We are hopeless. We are Alienated from God, there's nothing we can do about it. Only God can reach out to do something about it. It Brings us to the nature of the incarnation. You know, a focal point of the rustic nativity scene approach to the incarnation is emphasis on the baby, the child. Focusing on Jesus as an infant supports the world's narrative. Their preferred view of him as meek. Dr. MacArthur was talking about that this morning. Jesus as meek and mild and non-threatening. To the extent that they can envision him as having chubby cheeks, cute little hands with dimples in place of knuckles. I'm reminded of all this because our second grandson is just a year and a half, and he still has dimples in place of knuckles. He still has adorably thick feet. But to the extent that the world can envision him as having chubby cheeks and cute little hands with dimples in place of knuckles and adorably thick feet uh, wrapped in swaddling cloths, they can avoid the reality of who he is. It also aids them in picturing him as simply coming into being. At this point, not being the eternal God, taking on flesh and dwelling among us. So let's look at the nature of the incarnation and try and get past the cute feet and hands. First of all, this is what I've been, this particular element is what I've been meditating on for the last two and a half months. The unimaginable humility. The unimaginable humility that Jesus suffered in just becoming a human being. When we talk about the suffering of Jesus, we talk about the crown of thorns, we talk about him being beaten and spat upon, we talk about him having the spears stuffed in his side. We talk about him hanging on the cross and dying, and all of that is horrible suffering. But lots of people have suffered those things. Lots of people have suffered those things. A lot of the martyrs of the early church suffered worse physical things than that. But the real suffering of Jesus I would argue, is twofold. Uh, Those are suffering, don't get me wrong. But what distinguishes the suffering of Jesus is, first of all, the primary suffering of Jesus, which is having the sins of the world placed on him. Having this sinless person, holy God in human flesh, take the sins of all of mankind on him. That's the ultimate suffering of Jesus. But I would argue the second worst suffering of Jesus, and perhaps a suffering, we can't imagine it, so who knows, perhaps almost as powerful as that suffering, which was simply becoming a man. Going from eternal glory in an entirely sinless environment where he's worshipped 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, even though there isn't any time there, And he becomes a man in a sinful, dark world. He comes from a world of light, and he becomes a human being in this dark, sinful world. So let's talk about it. The unimaginable humility of Jesus. I've identified some elements of this, uh, no doubt. Joe and Abner could fill in more blanks, but Jesus is eternal. Jesus is eternal. And a lot of people sing it at Christmas times, but though they don't know it or they listen to it sung because they listen to the Messiah. Isaiah 9.6, a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, the government will rest on his shoulders, his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Micah 5.2 says that his appearances are from eternity. John 1, of course, says that he, he is the Word of God and he is God. Jesus is eternal, and yet he came to earth and took a body that was subject to To time. He became a baby and went through all of the transitions through youth and teenage years and became an adult and experienced limitations and the problems of humanity. He subjected himself to time. Secondly, Jesus is the creator of all things. The Bible is clear on this in a number of passages, such as the ones that I've listed here. He's the creator of all things. Nothing that was made was made but through him, the Bible says. And yet he took on the essential attributes of his creation. He didn't give up his deity He didn't give up his eternal nature and the other elements of his deity, and yet he took on essential attributes of his creation. I've been trying for two months to come up with an illustration for that, and I can't do it. I thought of saying, well, maybe you create, let's say you had the ability to create a little animal or something. But you can't do that because that animal doesn't have any dignity. Human beings have dignity. So there's just no parallel to it. Jesus' natural condition is glory. Jesus for eternity has been in glory and being glorified by the angelic host. And his essence is glory. Glory. John seventeen five, Jesus prays to the Father, and he says, And now glorify thou me together with, with thyself, Father, with the glory which I ever had with you, thee before the world was. As the second person of the Trinity, he has eternal glory. That is his nature. And, yet, and he showed it, right? He showed it to three of the apostles in the transfiguration, in which he pulled back the veil, he opened up the robe, and they were blinded by his glory. And they said, oh, let's build a tabernacle and just stay here. This is so great. His transfiguration shows it. And yet he took the form of a slave. He didn't just come to earth and give up his glory and become a human being. He took the form of a slave. He took the form of a humble human being. Like Dr. MacArthur was talking about this morning. Humility. And when Dr. MacArthur was talking about it, he, talk, he was talking about how we should all be humble because that's what we should be. We should be humble because we're not great. But Jesus was great and became humble. And subjected himself to people who weren't worthy to be stepped on. He washed people's feet. He washed the disciples' feet. Do you know that in in Jewish culture at that time a slave could not be required to wash feet. That was a task that was beneath the dignity of a slave. That's why Peter got so upset. You won't wash my feet. I mean he was he he was peter but it, but it, there was a basis for his complaint jesus is the source of life the source of life and he subjected himself to death He's the source of light. Not only in the transfiguration did they see the light of his glory, and he's the source of literal light, but he's the sort, source of spiritual light, as opposed to the realm of darkness, Satan's realm of darkness. He is the source of spiritual light. He's the light of men. Spiritual light. Transferring us from the kingdom of darkness. And yet he died in darkness. Remember that at the crucifixion, when he died, it became dark. Jesus enjoyed perfect communion with the Father. From eternity past. You can't measure it. I was going to say for centuries and centuries and centuries and eons and eons, you can't measure it. It's eternity. He enjoyed perfect communion with the Father. And then for our sakes, on the cross, he suffered abandonment by the Father. Jesus said no one among men was greater than John the Baptist. But John the Baptist said he was not worthy to untie Jesus' sandals. and He was right. Not only did he give up all of these things and more to become a man and to come in the Incarnation, but when he came, he didn't come to where I would have come. He came to experience the dirty, poor life of first century people in the Middle East. He didn't come in 21st century America for the highest standard of living in cell phones, great health care, Indoor plumbing. Because I teach history, people often ask me, if you could travel in time, where would you go? And I would say, well, not before 1960 or so. (laughs) You don't want to go back to the Civil... Yeah, I want to go to the Civil War. Give me a break. (laughs) He went to a time of horrible living conditions... a time of great oppression, and he gave up the use of his abilities. He didn't lose his abilities. He could call on them whenever he wanted, like when he walked on water or told the winds to quit or created food on the spot. He didn't lose his abilities, but he gave up the use of his abilities voluntarily. And he left the sinless environment of heaven to a place in which sin was everywhere, all around him. Think of the thing you hate worst. this The only thing I can think of is uh, if someone made me be perpetually floating in coffee. Or some other nasty thing. Or, I'm sorry, I I know this is probably not appropriate, but if you've ever seen Schindler's List, the little boy who hid in the toilet. Sin all around. A sin-filled environment for the holy God who cannot abide sin. He did that on... Voluntarily, he chose. Instead of being worshipped as he had been throughout eternity and will be for paternity in the future, he was surrounded by people full of pride, worshipping themselves and disdain for him. He took on The nature and the implications and limitations of a human body. He became subject to parents, subject to government officials, though he is the Lord of all. So, Joe, I'm going to pick on you again, but I'm not going to make you lie on the floor. So, Joe, what I'm going to ask you to do is to voluntarily choose to go some really, really nasty place. Can't think of where that's nasty enough. But I want you to go to the nastiest place you can think of. I want you to live there for 30 years. And I want, I'm telling you now, you are separated from your brother and your sister and your mom for 30 years. Say goodbye. You are going to this nasty place, and I want you to voluntarily become a, para- a quadriplegic and set aside your ability to do hardly anything. I want you to give up much of your mental capacity. You're not Dr. Zakevich anymore. And I want you to take a menial task, a menial job, um, And, by the way, the whole area surrounding you is occupied by your enemies. People who are not neutral, they are your enemies. And I want you to do this for them. I'm not even going to ask you to die or take on their sins. I just want you to do this much. Can I sign you up? (laughs) Abner, (laughs) same deal, except I'm not putting it on you. I want you to volunteer your son, Nehemiah, to do it. No. Do you know, we've lost a lot of sojourners, We just lost another precious saint today. But those sojourners who have gone to heaven before us, who live now in sinless perfection and light, understand now the enormity of Jesus' sacrifice just in leaving heaven and coming to earth, just that much. And not a single one of them would give up the glory, the sinlessness that they've achieved, the presence of God, not a single one of them would come back here for a single day, not even to visit their loved ones, much less their enemies Other than bearing the sins of all mankind, Jesus' greatest suffering was just humbling himself to become a man. This degradation is arguably worse than being beaten in the physical aspects of the crucifixion. But then there are those aspects. In addition, he came as the suffering servant, as we just read in Isaiah 53, He came to his own, the people that he created, and they did not receive him. His own family rejected him, earthly family. Not only the humanity that he created, but his chosen people that he had placed his special love upon for thousands of years. Rejected him. His closest followers deserted him, and he knew that they would before he came. John sixteen thirty two. Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you, my disciples, to be scattered, each to his own home and to leave me alone. And then, of course, we know the classic example was Peter. Peter said, not me. And we know how that turned out. He came in his incarnation to die for his enemies. We were enemies of God. Romans 5 among other passages. Romans 5, verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son... While his enemies were hopelessly lost in sin, verse 6 of Romans 5, for while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 7, one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. As per the passage that we read during the music period today, Jesus came as a righteous man to be crushed for our sake. He came to be crushed for our sake, to pay the price that we owed, but were helpless to pay. And you know what the Bible says? Yahweh was pleased to crush him. Yahweh was pleased to crush him. Kafate, the Hebrew word, pleasing, to, desiring. God was pleased to crush his son, not for his sin, but for the transgression of the people to whom the punishment was due, Isaiah 53 says. Yet Yahweh is not pleased by the death of the wicked. Same word, same Hebrew word. Ezekiel 33.11 says that Yahweh is not pleased by the death of the wicked. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live, Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, he says to Israel. He's not pleased by the death of the wicked, wanting them to repent. He is pleased to crush his son for those wicked. What happened to that cute little baby? Those chubby cheeks were slapped and punched. His baby bonnet was replaced by a crown of thorns. His cute little hands with dimples in place of knuckles had spikes driven through them to hang him to support the weight of his body. Those cute, fat feet, my favorite thing in babies, those cute, fat feet, they were nailed to that cross. A spike was driven through them. His swaddling cloths were stripped of him. They stripped him naked, beat him, and then put a false robe on him. One of my favorite things to do with my five-year-old grandson We have tickle periods, like I used to have with his mother when she was young. You have to put your hands behind your head and see how long you can stand being tickled before you bring your hands down. You know what's amazing? My girl grandson has that same talent that her mother had. She could do it forever. (laughs) The one-and-a-half-year-old is like our second daughter. All I had to do was go like this, and they're down. Don't even touch him. The cute baby's side was not tickled ultimately, it had a spear driven through it. Another part of the nature of the incarnation is that Jesus came as the second Adam. He came as the last Adam to succeed in righteousness and obedience where the first Adam failed. Like the first Adam, he was tempted in all ways. 1 John 2.16 For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, The lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. What did Adam and Eve say when they ate the pomegranate? Genesis 3, verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and a delight to the eyes and was desirable to make one wise... Same temptation, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, boastful pride of life. Jesus was tempted the same way. We could go back and look at his temptation in the wilderness, and Satan has the same playbook, the same three temptations. He was tempted in all ways, such as we are. He was tempted as Adam was the first Adam, but unlike the first Adam, without sin. He came as the last Adam to succeed in righteousness and obedience where the first Adam failed. The first Adam was made alive, the second Adam gives life. The first Adam was from the earth, the second Adam from heaven, but came to earth on our behalf. So that brings us to the third And this one has to be sort of manipulated, as often happens. The news of the incarnation. In this case, the good news of the incarnation. What happens as a result? Jesus reverses the curse of Adam. Romans 5. starting in verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For until the law, was in, uh, until the law sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned, from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned, in the likeness of Adam's offense, who was a type of him who was to come. A type of him who is to come. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God, and by the gift of God, the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many." And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So then as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. Did you get it? Paul just said it about seven ways. He reverses the curse of Adam, the second Adam. What does that mean? That means believers are redeemed. Elizabeth's husband, Zechariah, got it. In Luke 1, Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit of verse 67, and he prophesied. And here's what he said in verses 68 and 69. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. That's what the incarnation is about. Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law having become a curse for us. The eternal holy God became a curse for us. That's not all. Believers are justified before God. Second Corinthians 5.21 He, God, made Him, Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin, to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God treated Jesus as if he lived my life. And now he treats me as if I lived his life. Back to the initial problem. The garden. One other piece of good news from the incarnation. Believers are reconciled to God. The separation has been taken care of. The relationship restored. Colossians chapter 1. It was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace. What peace? Peace between nations? Peace between ethnicities? No, peace between God and us. Having made peace through the blood of His cross... Although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body, the incarnation, through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. 2 Corinthians 5 again. My favorite chapter in the Old Testament, at least, Isaiah 59, which says in verse 2, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. In verse 16, God says there's no one to fix this, so my own arm will bring salvation. says in verse 20, a Redeemer will come to Zion. That was the plan. What else happens? Believers are glorified. Jesus goes from glory down to humility, humbles himself, lives in this disgusting world, and as a result, believers are glorified. Like Janie Spear. Colossians 3. Here's something to meditate on. Colossians 3. We're familiar with this passage, but we don't think about it. Colossians 3, verses 1 to 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. We think about that a lot, but what about verses 3 and 4? For you have died, your life is hidden with Christ in God. Our lives are wrapped up in God, in Christ. Our real selves, our glorified, redeemed, not glorified yet, but redeemed and justified selves are wrapped up in Christ. But verse 4 says, When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you will also be revealed with him in glory. Think of it like Jesus has a big robe, and we're all wrapped up in the robe. Our our, Our justified, redeemed selves are wrapped up in his robe, and when he's revealed... We are revealed, our glorified selves. And believers are given resurrection bodies. I call it a sort of reverse incarnation. Jesus had a spiritual glorified body in heaven, and became a man we go from mankind to a glorified resurrection body like his also part of the good news Jesus fulfilled Genesis 3:15 and crushed Satan He crushed Satan, just as God said he would. And then ultimately, at the end of all of this, at the end of the unimaginable humiliation, at the end of the unimaginable suffering of becoming a human being and of having the sins of the world placed upon him so that he became sin. He is highly exalted. Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. After verses 5 to 8 that talk about his humiliation, his incarnation, verses 9 to 11. Therefore... God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Hebrews 1. He is the radiance of God the Father's glory, the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He's exalted, he was humbled. He humbled himself, and as a result, he was exalted. And Paul tells us in Philippians 2 that we should have this attitude in ourselves. And Peter says in 1 Peter 2, he left us an example to follow. So let's think for a moment about God's amazing love. The extent of God's amazing love, like we sang about in And Can It Be. Everybody who has a hymnal should... I'm going to be done five minutes early, so you should all rush home, pull out your hymnal, and read again the lyrics of And Can It Be. Amazing love. God was absolutely determined to restore, to provide a means of restoring his relationship with a chosen portion of mankind, to reconcile some of them to himself. He carried out a plan to arrange to spend sempaternity. We talk about eternity, but eternity means past and future. Only God is eternal. We will never be eternal. We will be sempaternal that means starting from when we started we will have no end vocabulary lesson for today <laughs> he carried out a plan to arrange to think about this to arrange to spend sympathy with millions of people who were his enemies he says i go to jesus said i go to prepare a place for you do you go to prepare a place for somebody who hates you, an enemy, somebody who ripped you off, somebody who insulted you, somebody whatever. God carried out a plan to arrange to spend sempitivity with millions of people who were his enemies. Jesus humbled himself beyond our capacity to grasp and carried out that plan. And having finished it, he went to prepare a place for us, the former enemies, in God's presence for Sempaternity. How does the song go? Amazing love. Father, we, we don't have capacity to thank you. Lord, we ask, Father, that you would make us grateful people. Amen.